All right, welcome to the audio podcast, The Golden Path, with Max and Aaron, season one. That's right. This season, we're going to go through the Gene Keys Golden Path program, um, with Max being our volunteer, Mm -hmm. and try to suss out some of the magical elements of the Gene Keys, and just apply them to life in general and see where it all takes us. Can't wait. Sounds exciting. Sounds good, Max. All right. Well, let's start with a little background. Maybe you could just introduce the Gene Keys from your perspective, but what it is, what, what, what have you signed up here for in your own mind? Oof, that's a great question. I'd, I'd almost defer to you to hear you answer it, but uh, in my mind, the Gene Keys is a tool for... Uh, understanding life and uh, understanding yourself and uh, understanding the different vibrations and frequencies and states of consciousness that we uh, move through and um, you know not just evolve through but that we uh, exist through and kind of ride through Um, you know we're only ever living in the present and this is kind of giving uh, color and description to the different flavors and modes of consciousness that we experience in the present. Wonderful. That's a really exquisite description. Um, perhaps you could give us a little bit of background about your journey to this point. You're not started na- you're not starting nakedly from nothing. You've you've been on a journey of discovering meditation, of doing self-inquiry. Just give us a little bit of context of where you're starting this journey and where, where you're hoping this might take you. Sure. Well, I'm uh, a little more than 20 years, 29 years, excuse me, into this journey. Um, so, I mean, I believe this journey begins when we are born, if not even before then. But um, to get to a place where you can even begin to wield a tool like this, um, it takes a lot of... Uh, self-inquiry and and listening Um, there's a lot of stripping away that needs to happen in order to even be ready to receive and be uh, humble enough to receive Um, so I would say within the last year really I've kind of uh, out of losing my job and you know taking a step back and in many ways I feel like stepping off of the hamster wheel of life been able to uh, take a deep breath and kind of attune into the present moment that is the only thing that has ever been happening um that that kind of helps bring us to where we are uh through that i started a meditation practice which is now a daily practice for me and um that really helped me hone in uh on the presence and be able to uh attune into this moment what have you noticed since starting this inquiry and this meditation practice how has it affected your life what types of insights or revelations have have come your way um since engaging with this process curious to know yeah great question um i think there's kind of twofold the one is learning how little i know um and just and i guess with that also comes detachment i mean the the process of meditation is being comfortable kind of detaching to your thoughts Um, they're always running through our heads and we'd love to hook into them and get a hold of them and let them whip us around Um, but we don't need to do that Um, and we can detach and we can uh, through meditation just observe the thoughts that are happening to us and and just notice them Um, and then try to bring that into the rest of your life no longer just be at the whim of all the stimulation that's constantly surrounding us, but be a little more aware and a little more deliberate in uh, which things that we do latch onto. Wonderful. And, and just to clarify, because there's a lot of people that are just constantly confused with the idea of meditation. They've mm-hmm. heard of it, mm-hmm. but when they try to go meditate themselves, they get lost in what to do. What, what do you do when you meditate? What's your process? Yeah, I mean, the goal is to do nothing, um, which comes easier for me than than for many others, I would assume. Um, My process is three deep breaths and then 
I close my eyes and try to maintain the focus on my breath. Um, easier said than done. Um, and then, you know, through that, try to check in on uh, all the sensations that you're feeling and uh, notice all the thoughts as they arise. And, um, you know, one thing with for people who are interested in starting meditation is just do it. Just get out there and start. It's very challenging, do particularly you, when you begin. Right. Do you sit somewhere? Do you have a sacred space? Do you go outside? Like, what's the pro the mechanical process? Because again, I think this is confusing to first time people getting into meditation, and I, and I think it's interesting to explore everybody's unique uh, process. Yeah, actually, that's a great point. Um, for me, what was the hook? that really kind of got me in. I, I'd been interested in meditation for a while and, you know, maybe meditated one-off sessions here or there. Um, about a year ago, I, I kind of decided it was something um, that could be of a lot of use to me and uh, something, I, a practice that I wanted to start to develop. Um, but I found it very difficult to just sit still. I mean, ultimately, you're trying to cultivate stillness. Um, but sitting in a chair there's so much going on. There's so many mm. sensations and that can become very distracting and uh, can be painful at is, times too. Is a, ch is a chair better or worse for you? Well, at this stage, I've actually come back to being comfortable sitting in chairs. What I was going to say is, no, the chair was very unhelpful for me, though I do mm. think it's probably the, the right thing for many people. But for me, I found that lying down on the ground on my back in Shavasana was the most instantly grounding and relaxing sensation. Cool. Um, I know some people uh, find it to be too relaxing, they too fall, much they like fall they fall asleep. Right. Or um, I think our, uh, yeah, I think it's sleeping and, and our minds are very relaxed and very uh, free flowing. I've noticed because now I do a mix of the Shavasana meditation and a seated meditation. Um, the seated meditation feels more deliberate, um, it feels more aligned that we are meditating and I do right. find my mind to be quieter right. in those sessions, but I don't find myself to be as relaxed and right. the entry point isn't as simple as when I'm in the Shavasana meditation. So that really was the hook for me. And, and I kind of stuck with that for about six months before going back to a, a seated meditation. Cool. Yeah. For me, seated meditation is so difficult because my body doesn't comply with sitting for very long. I have messed up knees sitting Indian style for three to five minutes. My legs fall asleep. It's, yeah. it's, the pain comes in. So it's nice to hear the idea of lying on your back because that's so easy. Mm -hmm. And um, I like that approach. You, you mentioned an entry point yeah. into meditation. Describe that because I think that's really important for people to, 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 to understand that there's an entry point into these other alternative states of consciousness. What is that entry point for you? How would you describe it? Yeah, I don't even know. I mean, uh, breath is kind of a way. I mean, at, at, at some point for the meditation, you realize that there's a certain texture to the non-meditative, regular, you know, mode of life that you're living. And uh, when you're meditating, you're trying to just step away from that for a moment and, right. and go into this other space. Um, you know, it's, it's the true presence. It's the, like, it's the being completely encapsulated with the moment. Right. Um, so it's maybe easier to describe than to access. Um, but yeah, being relaxed, being at ease, being calm, it's being able to follow a single breath, um, as it enters through, it comes into you right, and then exhales from you. You know, if you can do that one time, that's an entry point. Um, and then, you know, ideally you, kind of stay in that place um but also it's just the habit and, and getting you know familiar with flexing that muscle sure I, I i'm immediately thinking about a famous story of a, a jewish master and it, it's described that he came and entered he entered and exited with peace mm -hmm. and to apply that to a meditation practice right you may be going into alternative states of consciousness but the witness is always there meaning there's a part of you that's witnessing whatever state of consciousness you happen to be in. And that element, the witness, is is ultimately the ground that you're seeking to explore. It's not just the state of consciousness itself. It's it's the ability to come in and out of it and, and maintain peace in that process. Um, you know, any turbulent time you might be exposed to, 
to maintain peace going into that turbulent time and coming out of that turbulent time is really interesting, right? It's a transition point. Um, so that's a, a cool thing to think about as we dive into the gene keys, right? There, there's no right answer here, right? but maintaining awareness is part of the practice. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So let's, let's get into the gene keys. This is, um, an interesting time to turn the corner and begin, um, describing this, uh, transmission. It comes from an author whose name is Richard Rudd. It's also based on another system called human design, which preceded the gene keys by a man named Ra Uruhu. Um, and these systems are synthetic, they're composite. They, they build upon other traditions. They're heavily reliant on the, the I Ching, which is a book that you, uh, a few years back, gave me as a present. The I Ching is the oldest living um, text, as far as we know. It's been used for thousands of years um, consistently without, without stopping. Um, the I Ching literally translates as the book of changes and it comes from China. Um, and in China, they use it as a oracular text. It's used as an oracle. You consult it, you Mm -hmm. ask it questions. It gives, it whispers answers back to you. Um, and it's, you know, the, the Chinese studied nature, everything in nature is always changing. So the book of changes is an attempt to create a language to describe how nature is constantly changing. Um, you know, we did, we just talked about going in and out of different states of consciousness. Well, mm-hmm. what if we could give a name to each of those entry points or those, those moments along the way? Um, it's a really beautiful, beautiful system. And the gene keys is based on the I Ching, but it's also based on a, a bunch of other uh, transmissions, mystical traditions, esoteric texts. Um, the, probably the other hidden text in all of this language is the Book of Creation, the Sefer Yitzhara, mm-hmm. which is the foundational text of Jewish Kabbalah or mysticism. Um, and we, we'll talk about that uh, a bunch as we go along as well. But right now we're at the very beginning of the process. And when you sign up for the Gene Keys, it, gives, it spits out a hollow genetic profile which is basically a map, an archetypal map of, you know, the exact moment of your birth and using the stars and the planets as um, signs and signposts to reflect back to you an exact moment of imprinting. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it records not just the moment of your birth, but also 88 days before you're born. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's more than just that moment. It's thinking about that moment in a holistic context, right? Because the stars, the planets, they're moving through time and they consistently move through patterns in time. Um, those patterns we record as years, for example. Um, and there's a rhythm to those patterns. So we're, we're in, a, in essence, placing you in relationship to those rhythms and to those patterns. And I think that's really important too, because a lot of people get lost in the destiny stuff. You know, they start hearing about astrology and they roll their eyes or they don't take it seriously. And I just want to put out there that these are based off of ancient traditions and the ancients use the stars as maps, as guides, as GPS systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is an opportunity to remember what a sacred practice that was um, and to tune in to perhaps some of the power of these systems to help us explore our own, our own inner nature. Um, so to get started, you know, the Gene Keys journey has a, has a program called the Golden Path. It has three different steps to it or three different phases. The first phase is all about purpose or your unique genius. The second stage is all about love or encountering the relationships in your in your life. And the third stage is about harmony or integration or prosperity, the way you relate to the world at large and the way that you conduct business in the world, so to speak. Um, so all three of those phases we're going to explore in detail. Um, your hologenetic profile is made up of 11 different archetypes. They're essentially spheres um, again, this this is tracing back to the Sefer Yitzhah, the word in Hebrew, Seferot, or Sephira. Um, and they speak to um, energetic uh, places in your body or in your soul that are um, connected to your DNA, according to the Jinkies. And without going too far down the rabbit hole of what that might mean, um, let's just play with the potential of exploring these as a foil, 
meaning a foil is something that um, serves as a mirror and helps you understand you or yourself or your transformation through life a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's have fun with it, right? As opposed to taking it too seriously. Um, The first step of deciphering or decoding your hologenetic profile is to look at the four outer spheres. Um, There are four of them, and the first one is called your life's work. And in your encoding, if I look at your chart here, your life's work starts with gene key 63. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could walk our listeners through uh, gene key 63 as you first encountered it, what it means, how it works, move us through the shadow, the gift, the city, Mm -hmm. and and just walk us through some initial impressions of of the meaning of this archetype. All right. Well, I'm very new to uh, all of this and particularly to uh, gene key 63. I'm glad that I had some familiarity with the gene keys because you've been interested uh, with it for a while. We've probably made my uh, holographic... uh, Hologenetic. Excuse me, my hologenetic chart here a few times, but um, you've talked me through it a little bit, but this is the first time I'm really uh, taking up the text and and reading it and... um, so I'm, I'm very much walking this path uh, anew for the first time. And, and so far, I've only read uh, Gene Key 63, which is uh, my life's work, which is about reaching the source. Sure. And, and just to familiarize viewers with the process, you know, you read a, a chapter in a book called The Gene Keys. Mm-hmm. It's five, six, seven pages long. It's not a long entry. It's a chapter in the book. Um, and interestingly, chapter 63, there are 64 chapters. So you're basically at the epilogue of the book. That's right. The book itself, in the metaphor that Richard Rudd describes, ends at Gene Key 62. Mm-hmm. So w- chapters one and two are kind of the intro. Yeah. Chapters 63 and 64 are kind of the epilogue. That's right. And the meat and, po- and the meat and the potatoes, the jam, the juice is everywhere in between there. Mm-hmm. Um, in the original I Ching, the translation of the archetype of 63 is after completion. That's right. And I, I wanted to comment on that really quickly because completion is a word is one of the translations of the word tamim. Mm. In fact, there's many uh, occurrences in the Bible, in the original Hebrew Bible, of the word tamim. Sometimes in relation to battle, you know, you know, there's a there's a there's a uh, a part that basically says, hey, uh, we we you know we went and uh, we attacked the city, we won the battle. And then there's a question that's posed that says, did you complete the, the battle? And the, the word that's used is tamim. So com- it, it means completion in one of its many translations. And, you know, for me and for um, people who are not familiar with my journey, you know, in looking at the gene keys, I was actually studying ancient oracle systems because I became interested in the ancient Israelite oracle called mm-hmm. the Urim Vitumim. And I was perplexed that uh, the Urim Vitumim is sometimes translated as Lux et Veritas in Latin. And Lux et Veritas means light and truth, literally translated in the Latin. And I was trying to square the translation of light and truth, or Lux et Veritas, with the underlying Hebrew, which is Urim Vitumim. And in posing this question and, and seeing something that didn't make sense to, to my own brain in the world, I was trying to understand the truth of Tamim. How could Veritas which translates to tamim in this, you know, light and truth exemplar. Mm-hmm. How could that? How could that be? You know, lux obviously means light. Urim obviously means light. But veritas means truth with a capital T. Veritas. It's Harvard's logo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and on my journey, when I set out on this journey, the the question I was asking was was what is the truth? of tamim what does it mean what how could these words be put together because it didn't make sense to me as a literal translation as an easy explanation Um, and also i wanted to say that the phrase hologenetic profile hologenetic can be translated and directly correlated with urim vitumim holos comes from the greek word for whole and genetic comes from the word genesis or gene, which means creation or something new that's created. Um, so urim vitumim 
and hologenetic have a really interesting simpatico right up right at, right at the start and tumeme one of the the gene keys that codes for tumeme or tamim i use those words interchangeably is the 63rd gene key when i read the 63rd gene key i felt like i'd finally come to the resting point the the conclusion of this journey which took years really of trying to understand the ancient Israelite oracle. And I found in the Jinkies an exquisite description, not just in 63 and 64, which are one of the Jinkies that kind of perfectly mirrors the Urim Vitumim, but you know, in other Jinkie pairings as well. And um, before we dive too far, let's talk about the genetic pairings, okay. right? Because this is fundamental to understanding how the Jinkies works. This mm-hmm. is fundamental to understanding how um, many ancient oracle systems work, but inherent to these ideas is the idea that, that there is a push and pull, a yin and yang to the universal energetics. Yes. And most people are familiar with yin and yang, but we don't quite get it a lot of the times, right? That's right. Um, and your life's work, which corresponds to where the sun is in the sky at the, you know, at the moment of your birth, um, has a complementary energetic archetype. And the complementary archetype in this occasion is the 64th gene key. So the 63 and 64 are, they're a couple essentially. One is more yin and one is more yang is a way to think about it. Um, but they are wholly part of each other, right? Um, you can understand them individually, you can break down their meanings, but you can't understand them w- well unless you consider them as opposing partners. Um, so with the 63rd gene key, um, walk us through its meaning and your reflections on its meaning in your first pass. Obviously, this is the beginning of a contemplation, but um, you have some really exquisite um, insights and I'd love for you to share. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think we'll, we'll learn even more about 63 uh, tomorrow or the next time when we discuss 64, which I haven't gotten to yet. Right. And uh, I'm excited to get there. But um, yeah, the 63 is, uh, is my life's work. Um, as I'd mentioned, it's about reaching the source, which very much uh, resonates with me. I mean, I guess to start at the end, at least how I see it of the, of the process, and this is, of course, the uh, gene key of after completion, um, getting to the truth, getting to the source is very much about stripping away. Um, okay. What are the three um, words associated with this gene key? That's right. It's a doubt, inquiry, and truth. And doubt is the shadow frequency. Mm-hmm. And, and from what you know, explain to our listeners what the shadow frequency represents. The shadow frequency is probably the uh, the lowest vibrating frequency. And uh, with that, I think it's probably the frequencies that we're most attuned to and, and most familiar with. Right. Um, so the shadow of doubt. That's right. Which is a, a, a beautiful play on words. Mm-hmm. I don't think the system was created with that play on words in mind, but when it came together... I bet you Richard Rudd laughed out loud. He definitely did. Um, and then there's the gift frequency, which is which is kind of a, st- a stage or state beyond the shadow frequency. And, mm-hmm. and explain the relationship between the shadow and the gift. Well, within every shadow, there there is a gift. Um, and at least as how I've uh, contemplated these two thus far, um, the gift is kind of the, the tool or the mechanism or the vehicle for um, moving you know, through the shadow frequency and, and ultimately guiding yourself to the uh, quintessential frequency. Um, so in this case, it's uh, inquiry, which uh, the gift of inquiry definitely resonates with me personally. Okay, um, I love this. So let's, yeah. we'll note that the, the, the Siddic frequency, which is kind of like the enlightened frequency, mm-hmm. is called truth yeah. with a capital T. We talked about that a little bit. But let's push that off to a side for a bit because it's so esoteric to talk totally. about the city. Yes. And, and there's so much potential in just encountering the, the, the shadow mm-hmm. and the relationship between the shadow and the gift. So the shadow, um, if I remember correctly, has two kind of states to it or two um, polarities. Yep. Um, one of the polarities of the shadow is self-doubt. That's right, the repressive nature. The repressive nature. And, and Richard Rudd does a beautiful job of breaking down the repressive na- nature and the reactive nature of each of these frequencies. Mm-hmm. And that, that's helpful for exploring in your own DNA and your own being and becoming, you know, when those 
elements arise in your life and everybody suffers from self-doubt. Of course. Um, these are universal archetypes. Um, and the other polarity is suspicion suspicion right and the enemy of this so to speak is dogma right right. when when we are when we become uh we become so doubtful that we almost blame others and get angry at them Mm -hmm. Um, we become suspicious of them that it's it's the source of dogma so to speak in the world but from a personal perspective as you read this gene key as you've thought about it and contemplated it very briefly because we're taking a, a rapid fire approach here yeah Tell me what what it, what did it mean to you? How did it how did it affect you to read these words and to and to meditate and contemplate these um, these archetypes? Yeah, well, the the first thing that kind of struck me about doubt is it has a, a real kind of negative connotation to it, um, and I don't really see myself as somebody who's filled with doubt in the pessimistic sense. Um, right. I definitely suffer from self doubt because we all do. But it was interesting reading in here about how. Um, you know, self-doubt turns into anxiety when we don't let it complete its cycle and we don't right. let it move all the way through. And uh, I certainly suffer from that, but probably not as much as, as other people. Right. Um, I'm, I'm actually kind of naturally good at letting the self-doubt right. process itself all the way through. Um, and similarly, I don't find myself to be like overtly suspicious, but in uh, understanding doubt in uh less of a negative connotation, I realized that I'm filled with doubt and fueled by doubt. Right. Um, And it's really kind of tied to uh, this curiousness and also a sense of nonconformity. Right. I think a lot about kind of uh, not accepting the status quo, not being okay with just leaving things the way that they are, the way that they have always been done. Right. and constantly that there uh, there's a wonderful kind of unsettled quality to doubt sure um it's it's the domain of science in some respects yes it's also the domain of philosophy Mm -hmm. in some respects i would say a lot of philosophy majors have this self-inquiry and this doubt component to their life totally and that was certainly why i was drawn to studying philosophy in college right was very much that um and uh, yeah, very much kind of have always felt like I need to be seeking the truth. I don't even necessarily know what that means. I mean, that's mm. jumping ahead here a little bit, but I've always felt like I have that draw and that tendency. So it definitely felt um, felt uh, prescient that this was uh, my life's work. This gene key is about moving from doubt uh, to truth. Interesting. Um, again, some important pointers for our first time listeners to the gene keys. Um, the life's work is connected to um, your external happenings in the world. Um, it's the doing dimension as opposed to the being dimension. Mm-hmm. You know, the people that who who know you would think of you and and see the light reflected of your life's work. In this case, doubt, self inquiry, and truth. It's 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 you. It's your brand in certain respects, and mm-hmm. we'll get into that later. Yeah. Um, how, how does that resonate with you? Does that seem like an accurate portrayal? Are you suspicious of it? Um, walk me through how it, it's personally re- resonated with you at the level of um, your life's work. Yeah, I mean, it's something I still need to kind of sit with and, and digest, but it, it definitely feels right. I mean, in some ways, it's like uh, grabbing a new hat. Right. Uh, to, to put on and I've worn many different hats throughout my life and I'm talking literally about hats right now right um, and you know it oftentimes is grabbing a new hat and then you keep wearing that same hat every day and all of a sudden that you know becomes your hat and people can't see it any other way so I can certainly see doubt uh, becoming one of these these new hats here um, but it feels right in the sense of always questioning always challenging um, one thing that was interesting that came out of Uh, my contemplation was um, it talks about relaxation Mm. and that there's kind of a a relaxedness to doubt. Right. Um, And I think of that as the contrast to comfort. Right. um, Which we often kind of think as being one and the same, being comfortable and being relaxed, but they're actually quite different. Right. Um, I have very little interest in comfort. Right. I have tremendous interest in relaxation. Well, and certainly divine relaxation right i mean if you feel the anxiety of doubt self-doubt right i mean we all feel it 
especially in trying times like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when you lost your job, which yeah. you mentioned earlier, yeah. that immediately throws you into a, you know, a self-examination process. And mm-hmm. I can only imagine the doubt you felt about what the next steps in your life ought to be. Sure. Maybe you could walk us through that, um, that memory. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was an interesting time because I, I kind of uh, did a lot of things to distract myself from kind of being present to that. Right. Um, mostly a, a relationship in particular. And uh, it took me about three months before I actually kind of came to and realized how distraught I was about losing my job. Right. Um, and that was, you know, in many ways, the first time I was willing and able to force myself to kind of be still and be present and um, work on it and, and, and sit with the uncertainty. Right. And there's so much uncertainty in our world right now. There's as much uncertainty in my life right now as there was a year ago. Right. But I've gotten so much more comfortable at being with the uncertainty. Interesting. And that's a lot to me about what the doubt is about. Right. Well, um, it's it's the uncertainty in everything. Right. And it's interesting too, right? Because there are so many traditions, spiritual traditions, which points which point out that everything is changing, right? So if you think you know what's going on, um, it's life's going to throw you a curveball. It's going to pull out the rug from underneath. Uh, you know, the best laid plans are always undermined at some point with these curveballs and surprises. That's right. And if you can't sit with the doubt, right, you're going to you're going to be in this state of anxiety mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and I've, I've hear this hinted in your words, and I saw this when I kind of re- looked over the gene key before we began this podcast, mm-hmm. that you know one of the ways, one of the techniques, one of the tools to use in, in feeling and sitting with your own doubt is to just step away from it and laugh at it and understand that, of course, we can't know anything. You literally must doubt everything because right. how could you actually ever know? That's right. Um, yeah, talk about that for a second with me. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the 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 certainty in uncertainty, you know, that's like the only certain thing is that we don't truly ever know. Um, and, you know, not latching on to things and thinking that something is secure because ultimately whatever, you know, that physical thing you're latching on to is going to be rooted in the planet and the planet is flying through outer space, right? right. So it's like to any one degree or another, you're going to realize that um, things fall apart. And, and I think we're actually kind of leading into a nice transition to inquiry, right. which is when you begin to question and, and keep going further. Um, one great thing was how it spoke about how the more you ask, the more you inquire, the more complex things get. Mm. But ultimately, as you keep going, they break down so fully right. that you kind of return um, to where you are. And it, it right. ultimately uh, unleashes the subjective. Right. Well, Objectivity only gets you so far. And, and because this is a, a gene key that codes for um, logic in many respects um, and our left brain thinking, mm-hmm. right? One way to think about the duality of the, le- of the 63rd and 64th gene key is your left brain versus your right brain. That's right. And the left brain approach, the logical approach, the rational approach dominates in our society um, in ways that could be, even be described as unhealthy, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and all logic ultimately leads to paradox. That's been pointed out many, many times by the great philosophers, the great wisdom traditions. Um, it's always becomes a, a cat chasing its tail in certain respects. Um, talk me through the logical part of your mind. How does, how does your logical mind work? Mm, that's a great question, and, and it becomes a more difficult question to answer as I f- move further and further away from it. Um, I feel like I used to be much more in touch Whoa. with the logical part of my mind. You told me the other day that you were really interested in mathematics that's in your right. youth. And yes. that you ran into a childhood friend, and he remembers you as that guy that's really good at math. Totally. That's right. the 63rd jinky. Yeah. So I was very much thinking about that. Yeah. I mean, certain, right. When I was younger, I was the best at math growing up. Um, I don't give that any credit beyond that. My mom taught me all the math, uh, when I was a little kid. So I just had already learned it all. It wasn't that I was preternaturally gifted in any sense, but I was certainly was drawn to the structure and the order and the problem solving and the putting pieces together. And I have a specific kind of 
vague memory of really liking the symmetry of a square right and just how kind of solid and reliable it is and no matter what size it is it's always going to hold the same dimensions and have the same balance um circles are were not i wasn't as drawn to circles as a young kid right because they're confusing totally confusing yeah that that wasn't what resonated with me and um i would have loved an equilateral triangle but uh, you know an isosceles triangle okay but when you get into all these weird shaped bended you know obtuse angled triangles forget about it it's getting too funky but having the you know the, the strong sturdy columns you know that that very much spoke to me but as i've aged you know, I think once you kind of get a grip of that, you're like, okay, what's next? How mm. do I approach the circle? How do I begin to understand that? Right. Um, so we talked about how, you know, in, in high school, I was great at math and science. Those are certainly the classes that came easiest to me right. and, and kind of naturally fit the way that I think about things and, and understand things in a very logical, orderly sense. But well, it doesn't, it's not so much what I'm drawn to. Right. I was so much more drawn to art history english even though that didn't come as uh, naturally to me right well in some ways that that is showing the progression from the shadow into the gift from that movement of pure logic into the mo- movement of, totally. of inquiry yes and I openness definitely noticing that and right well, well it's interesting to reflect that the gene keys paradigm you know the, the paradigm of the golden path mirrors the paradigm of the shadow and the gift the city mm-hmm. the physical the emotional the mental and then obviously all three of those together is the spiritual. It's the space in which all of this unfolds. Um, how would you describe your movement from relying on your logical mind to trusting the sense of inquiry and, and the openness of not knowing? Um, what was that journey or that transition or that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's still ongoing, um, which always is the toughest thing to get a perspective on, what you're in the midst of. Um, but for me, it's, it's the openness. Um, it's the being ready to receive. Mm. You know, a square doesn't like the other rectangles because they're not squares. Um, well, inquiry often starts with a question. Certainly. Right? That's an interesting thing, right? I mean, in some respects, when you ask a question, you go on a quest. Definitely. Um, what has been the question or the quest you've been on most recently, would you say? Um, well, I don't know about most recently, but the ultimate question and quest is what is going on? Right. You know, I, I haven't, other than, uh, the brilliant answer of all sorts of shit, I haven't really found a, a great answer to that. Um, I feel like I found definitely some wisdom in uh, the truth with a capital T and uh, Gene Key 63. Well, let's talk about that. And also, let's try to frame for this entire podcast series a question that we can ask, or you can ask, but we can ask together. Yeah. That will ground our inquiry, because this is an inquiry. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about the structure for moving forward, which is a six, Gene Key 63 type of question to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are 11... Um, Sephirot. There are 11 spheres in your hologenetic profile. And our plan that we've talked about is to step through all 11 of those mm-hmm. each episode and then go backwards. Yeah. So we're going to go one through 11 and then 11 through one. Um, and we're going to kind of complete that pattern full circle. Um, and we're going to rush through it. Yep. Meaning the gene keys is advised. Richard Rudd says, you know, take your freaking time. Totally. Read these, contemplate these, move through them at your own pace. There's no rush. And we're going to break those wor- rules. We're going to rush through the 11 gene mm-hmm. keys with you. And then when we get to the end, we're going to go very slowly back that's to right. the beginning. And that's a really cool process for us to engage. I think that's there's some fun in that. Um, and we're going to peel back layers. You know, you've mentioned stripping away quite a few times. That's I know is coming from our conversations a little bit. Um, the, the gene key that codes for the life work for anybody's life's work is gene key 23 which is my life's work Mm -hmm. and the original translation of gene key 23 or of hexagram 23 in the I Ching is stripping away Mm. and the idea is that you know we are perfect distillations of our essence right this is about calling forth our essence this is about encountering that inside of insides that holy place inside of your soul that essence that is uniquely you Mm -hmm. and that's what we are engaging with. That's what we're uh, inquiring about. 
Um, and it's going to be fun to do this out loud. I think that presents a, presents a unique challenge and, and it takes a lot of courage too. So I wanted to say thank you up front for being willing to go along this journey and being willing to go along this journey out loud. I think one of the blessings of doing this out loud is other people can see what it means to go through this process and, mm-hmm. and can engage in their own way uniquely. Yeah. Well, and to that, I'll just say thank you. Nobody I would rather go on this journey with or feel uh, more comfortable uh, to let to let guide me through this journey. So thank you as well. You're welcome. And, and I do have to say at this point, uh, Richard Rudd is emphatic about this. You are the guide. I'm your, I'm your partner in dialogue. Sure. You're my Sherpa. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, the Gene Keys is not a ideological, uh, system that's going to impose on you what to think or feel. It's an invitation to allow yourself to be your own master, Mm -hmm. um, and to walk your own path, uh, with, with great confidence. Yes. You know, confidence means with faith and, um, and it's the opposite of self-doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so perhaps we can now uh, also explore the, the Siddic dimension to this because you mentioned truth with a capital T and how that impacted you as you thought about it. Um, tell me what truth with, with a capital T means to you. Well, it didn't mean anything to me really before uh, reading this other than that it's kind of the thing I've always been drawn to. I mean, what is entirely pure um, is something I'm, you know, I'm curious about. Um, right. And I imagine there's a lot of wisdom in there. But what I've learned is that uh, truth is everything. I mean, and to me, truth is the ever-present now. It is this moment right. that we are in and have always been in and always will be in and the moment in which, you know, it's this infinite moment in in which everything is happening and has happened and will happen. Right. Um, so in that sense, it becomes pretty accessible. Mm. And there was a, another line um, in here in uh, Gene Key 62 that very much resonated with, with me, which was uh, whenever you smile or breathe a deep sigh, there you are coming closer to truth. Mm. And so that was a real hook for me because that's very much been what my meditation practice has been about. Mm. Um, certainly connecting to my breath and using that as the constant reminder of being present and being attuned and connected to this moment. But even more so than that, the smiling. Mm. I smile when I meditate. Right. Um, I try to remind myself during my meditation to smile. Right. Um, and I similarly try to smile throughout the day mm. um, and recognize that that's not you know something I'm going to necessarily always have fixed upon my face, but that when I see beauty, I should respond, respond in kind by smiling. Right. And that in taking a deep breath, in smiling, you are dropping, you are letting go of whatever else was happening in that moment, and you're coming back to the bigger, ever-present moment. You are connecting to the truth. I would be remiss to not have you walk our viewers through the process that's described in the Jinkies. It's kind of the core fundamental technique of contemplation and compare that to meditation as described in the Jinkies, right? Because these words can be used interchangeably, um, but they're used specifically um, in the Jinkies to denote different um, types of practice. So what does contemplation mean to you and, and, and how have you used it so far um, since picking up the Jinkies? Yeah, well, it's a rather new, deliberate practice for me. I've definitely been contemplating things my entire life, but never uh, as deliberately uh, contemplating with a capital C, in a sense, um, as I have uh, while reading the the Gene Keys. And and it's about being present to your thoughts Mm. um, and, you know, kind of checking in throughout your day about uh, this is what I'm thinking about and what, you know, how does this moment connect with, you know, this idea that we're thinking about, but it's also, um, for me, always connected to listening. Mm. Um, that's definitely a strength of mine. I think it goes hand in hand with the gift of inquiry. Um, right. it's not merely to just pose the question, right. but to then actually be attuned and listen attentively to the information that you're going to receive to, and learn very much what the next question is going to be. Beautiful. Um, so, uh, and in order to listen well, 
you have to be quiet. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you know, Gene Key 23 speaks to the idea that we don't need to keep adding things, layers on top of our persona in mm-hmm. order to discover truth with a capital T. We need to pull back and, and strip back the layers and, f- and find that inner essence. It's, it's always already there. That's right. Um, I wonder if uh, truth and doubt, can you explain that connection again? Uh, because it's so exquisite, right? Um, I wouldn't necessarily um, think that they're opposites as the shadow and the, and the city ought to be, but, but there's a, there's a really beautiful relationship there. I mean, we've touched upon it, divine doubt. Yeah. Um, and whole truth, right? Mm-hmm. Not truth that's objective, like scientific truth. Or did you, uh, you know, did you brush your teeth yesterday? Yes, I did. That's, you know, a, a form of... Uh, outside truth. Outside truth, yeah. right? This is a different type of truth, right? This is the truth of your whole being. This is the truth of your personal revelation of your relationship to the cosmos. Mm-hmm. It's a truth of um, understanding your specific place and partnership in the world. You know, when I started on this journey, I uh, had wanted to study Rumi. And Rumi is a great nonlinear thinker and mm-hmm. poet. And I bought a book at a garage sale, a Rumi book, a, a book of Rumi's quotes and writings. And when I opened up the book, there was a quote written that somebody had written at the beginning of the book. It, it had obviously been a friend, a gift to a friend. And the quote said, the meaning of life is to discover your gift. And the purpose of life is to give it away. Mm-hmm. And then it said, Pablo Picasso. <laughs> I don't know that Pablo Picasso ever said that, but it's such a beautiful quote. Um, what does that mean to you in the context of engaging and starting this journey along the Gene Keys? What do you think that means? Well, I think there's a connection between doubt as the path to truth. Um, and then ultimately, once you kind of resonate with truth, I mean, it seems like you know, the Gene Keys is telling me that that's what I need to uh, continue to, to spread and, and send out into the world and help people uh, discover um, for themselves. But um, on truth, I was kind of reflecting that it has a very elusive quality to it of mm. like, you know, you feel like you're close to it, but how exactly, what exactly is it? It's kind of mercurial in that sense. And I realized that's because it is so ever present that it's hiding in plain sight. I mean, right. truth is water to the fish. Right. It is, you know, this, the container, the sphere in which this is happening. Right. The quintessential, the fifth element as the alchemist described. Mm-hmm. Um, what is that experience life like to encounter truth, right? With a capital T. Yeah. Right. Because this is truth as love. Right. right? This is, this is not truth as, uh, you as know, a fact, as yeah. a fact. Um, th- but this is the fact of love, right? right? The ever present fact of, um, that openness. Um, as you've engaged with meditation, as, as you walk this path, have you felt your body opening up? What's the somatic and what's the experiential qualities you've been feeling through this process totally i've completely felt myself opening up as you were saying that i could feel my eyes going wide which in very much as you know my eyes opening up to take in as as much as we can um it feels like feeling i mean it's letting myself completely feel and and be present to the consciousness of that moment Mm. um and also being uh wide and, and, and broad. Um, and you know, I, I find being, it's so helpful to be in nature, to be more attuned to kind of the natural cycles. And, you know, that's very much the domain and sphere where, uh, they are just living in the ever present moment. But, um, what is it like to, uh, see or experience truth? It's glorious. I mean, it's, it is such tremendous beauty mm. and honor. Mm. Um, it's it's love and it's lovely. Interesting, yeah. You, you reminded me the uh, the Bible, the Christian Bible, is full of this um, idea of good news. Hmm. The the phrase "good news" is repeated all throughout uh, the Bible. 
Interesting. And it never made sense to me what that was. It was kind of this anachronism when I when I first started reading the Bible, um, literally. Um, but when I first felt any experience of the divine as a mystical encounter, oh my gosh, you it's like seeing the best movie of your life all by yourself and mm-hmm. wanting to share that feeling, that sentiment, that, that um, inquiry with other people. Yeah. There, there's a deep sense of wanting to share that comes out of that type of revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't doubt that the best way to share is just by being loving, by embodying love, by um, you know, standing in that presence, so to speak. Um, it's definitely not about sharing knowledge in the way that we want right. to make it out to be. Oh, we got this new mystical system or, oh, you got to check out this new book. It's so much simpler than that, right? A child embodies it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- th- there's not a animal or uh, being on this planet that doesn't fully access that domain um, because it's the substance that we're made of. Um Walk me through what you think the slippery slope is of truth with a capital T. Where do we get lost in it? And where do we stand constantly in reminder of its, of its power and of its presence? Oh, well, I think we get lost in it when we uh, try to grab it or get a hold of it or try to explain it too much because it's, it's the stripping away. It's the just being... It's, it's the presence, right? And when you try to, you know, you, to get a hold of it, there's nothing to hold on to. Right. Um, so I think that's uh, in many regards kind of where we, where it can get tripped up. It also, at least for me right now, feels accessible, but not, uh, it's not the frequency that I'm, it's the frequency that I'm aspiring right. to hold on to and emanate and have be with me on a sustained level. But right now it's something that I'm able to access, but not something that I have with me right. at all times. What's the paradox that you're encountering in your life right now? Because this jinky codes for paradox, mm-hmm. um, you know, paradox is released in that exactly that way you just described where you can kind of step away from the paradox, that logical formulation of truth right? and instead step into the, the presence of um, your unique being. Um, but asking a question is so powerful. And, 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 you know, we, we talked about that a little bit ago, like what's the question we can a- ask through this inquiry we're about to engage on? Um, yeah, I mean, the questions, I guess, are, are, are what should I be doing or what, what should I do? And, you know, kind of hand in hand in that is how should I do and how should I be? Okay. Um, so those are very much the questions. I mean, the, the paradox of my life right now seems to be um, that, I'm, that I am kind of living uh, this wonderful, very ever-present life um, that's totally absorbed in the moment. Right. But in the larger scheme of things you know an outsider might say your life's a disaster your life's a mess where are you going where who, is this who heading? is this kid? who is this right? right um so that's kind of the the great paradox of my life right now on the one hand i've never been happier on the other hand i've never had less going for me right and just to familiarize our viewers with your where you are how old are you? What stage of life are you in? What's coming next? What's what's coming down the pike? What are the challenges? Well, let's see. I'm 29 years old. We're in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We're in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, you know, I'm approaching 30, which is uh, exciting. It's not so daunting, but there is certainly moving further away from childhood and youth. Um, and I've learned a ton but I haven't um, accumulated a lot. Right. And so we know just the question is, how do I continue this and how do I build and how do I equip myself best to help share and empower others? I mean, those are the challenges in many regards. Interesting. Um, I want you to know that when I turned from 20, when I was 29 turning 30, I freaked out Mm. much more than I thought I would. I'm definitely not somebody that thinks about my age and when birthdays come up, I'm not, that absorbed with them but going from 29 to 30 i really felt dislocated in my life Hmm. i i I pressed pause 
and I, I did a self-examination and I said to myself, I am in the wrong place. Yeah. I am not doing what I should be doing. Hmm. Um, I was running a startup. I was living in New York. I loved mentally working on the startup, thinking right. about it. I loved being in New York. Every a- aspect of that was a learning lesson for me. But I also knew that I was not pointed in the right direction. I wasn't feeling great alignment in my life, for example. Mm-hmm. It was a, a major transition point for me to um, think about where I was and to come to the conclusion that I needed to make changes in my life. Right. Um, do you feel a similar sense of dislocation or do you feel like uh, you're exactly where you're supposed to be? What's that sense of alignment you, you get right now in your life? Right now, being as hyper-specific as possible to this very moment, I feel like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And in part, that's because I know that at every moment of my life, I will be right here. Right. This is where I'm going to be. And then, you know, to speak to kind of the, I think that's pretty common what you experienced uh, turning 30, um, in large part because, you know, these birthdays are in some ways like this, you know, astrological event that comes through. It's the asteroid shower, and it gives you that moment to pause and reflect and check in on your life. Um, You know, my life was hit by an asteroid, you know? Right you know, basically 16 months ago. So I think I've kind of gone, that forced me to go through many of the things that if there hadn't been such a disruption that maybe a birthday would have triggered for me. Well, I know that um, a lot of people like to refer to um, a cycle called Saturn's return because when you're born, Saturn's Mm -hmm. in a specific place in the sky. Right. And it takes 29 to 30 years for it to fully come back to that exact place in the sky where it was when you were born. That's right. Um, you know, 30 is interesting because we count in the decimal system. We count using 10 as our base yes. number. So 30 sounds like a really important transition when you're counting in, right. in every, a decimal yeah, system. Every decade does, yeah. Right. But there's nothing particularly special about a base 10 system. And right. that's something we just don't know and fully understand because we're inside of this English metric system, this Western worldview. Um, we count time in a base 60 or a base 12 system hmm. that comes from Babylon all the way back to the Babylonians. Interestingly, the Chinese use a very similar way to tell time. Um, I find that fascinating because if you take a circle and you divide it by two, or you divide it by four, or you divide it by three, those are just different ways to split up a pie, right? right? Like a clock divides a circle into 12 equal segments. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about time, we, what time is it? Oh, it's, it's, you know, 1230, right. You know, that's a system that's breaking down the 12 into 12, uh, slices of a pie, Mm -hmm. but the seconds are being broken down by 60. That's right. So that's a base 12 and base 60 system. Yeah. That's how we tell time. Our calendar system, the 365 days we use has its own sense of 12 to it because we divide it into 12 unequal months. Yeah. Um, and that's, a really interesting way to um, understand our, our experiences is to break them down into these time and calendrical moments, mm-hmm. but it's certainly not the only way. Right. Um, what the Gene Keys does, pulling from the human design system, is it's breaking down time into a pattern of 64. And the pattern of 64 is the last thing I want to talk about here um, because it is the underlying fundamental pattern that we're exploring. Mm-hmm. It is the pattern that connects us to our DNA code. The DNA code is written in a pattern of 64. That's right. There are 64 codons or letters of the alphabet that our entire genetic code is written in. You are a living code. Your whole body is written in code. And it is a code that uses 64 letters of an alphabet in order to share and um, communicate information over time. Um, Not only is the pattern of 64 inherent to our DNA, it is also inherent to our computational systems. Our computers are based off of a pattern of 64. Mm-hmm. Leibniz, who is a famous German mathematician who discovered calculus or the calculus at the same time as Isaac Newton, was studying binary mathematical systems and encountered the I Ching mm. and found confirmation in the I Ching for his binary mathematical Um, writings which form the basis of computational thinking Hmm. which became computers so the computer code our biological code are both written in a pattern of 64 
And so is one other thing in our life. Do you know what that is? I do not. You want to give a you want to give a gander or a guess? By the way, how do you get to the pattern of sixty four? It's a doubling sequence, right? It's the number two times two, which is four. Right. Four times two is eight. Eight times two is sixteen. Sixteen times two is thirty two. Thirty two times two is sixty four. Mm-hmm. It's two to the sixth power. That's right. Or it's eight times eight. Um, that pattern is found throughout the universe. Um, it's you can connect that pattern to the Fibonacci sequence in a really interesting way. Interesting. We can get into that another episode. Um, but we have our DNA code, we have our computer code, and then we have these ancient oracle systems, hmm. including the I Ching, yep. that are written in this code. The code of sixty-four is inherent to the information architecture of the I Ching of the human design system of the gene keys. So I just wanted to bring that up as another um, layer that we'll, we, we will be investigating, that we will be inquiring around um, throughout this podcast. Fantastic. And with that, let's close up shop. We're going to do this um, 11 more times. Um, then we're going to take a pause and then we're going to do it 11 more times moving in the opposite direction. Um, and this has been a really beautiful introduction um i should note that we started with the end that the 63rd gene key is the epilogue it's it's part of the appendix if you will Mm -hmm. i mean we're starting at the end and i think there's a beauty in that and we can kind of tease out that beauty over time it's something we can refer back to um thank you for being so open thank you for sharing thank you for your insights and um, I'm excited to uh, to do this with you over the next several weeks and several months as as this unfolds. You're very welcome, and thank you too, Aaron. This has been uh, a real treat. <laughs>